Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Among the oldest questions of humans are the following. Who are we? What are we doing here? Where did we come from? How did we get here? And where are we going? Two of these questions are now tractable for scientific inquiry. And they are, where did we come from and how did we get here? And this subsumes the subject of anthropogeny, explaining the origin of humans. Our mission statement is as follows. We use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. I'd like to go back more than 50 years when C.P. Snow pointed out that there were two domains of academia, humanities and sciences, and they seemed to have a difficult time getting together. Well, it's not very different from the ongoing nature-nature debates, and for that matter, it really comes down to culture and genes. Now, if you want to pursue anthropogeny, you need to avoid such false dichotomies. So we need to look at the humanities and the sciences, study nurture with nature, and the theme of today is culture gene coevolution. I'm going to talk about uh, how one culturally varying trait uh, that I've studied for uh, the last 25 years, namely how mating preferences are formed and evolve, including preferences such as monogamy of a, a polygamy, um, how they influence the patterns that we see of genetic or genomic variation uh, around the world today. Um, We'll begin with uh, the beginning when uh, Darwin, whose last uh, major works mostly concerned plants, uh, was very uh, interested in how inbreeding reduced fitness in plants. Then we have um, the observation by the famous uh, geneticist uh, Garrod, who noted that uh, rare traits occurred more frequently in the offspring of unaffected relatives. Um, but uh, the recurrence of these traits was really made uh, more precise when people absorbed the meaning of Mendel's work. From that point on, uh, we recognized that there was a higher probability of homozygosity, that is, having two alleles the same at deleterious recessive loci that were inherited from people who were genetically related. That is, their genes were identical by descent. Now, history and cultural factors can affect the level of genomic homozygosity in any uh, given set of genomes. Um, and among the, the effects are those of population size. Population size uh, varies uh, through time and space. And it can be a function of historical bottlenecks, that is, uh, events that cut a population size significantly, or by geographical isolation, 
which involves separation of populations from one another so that there are no genes being passed back and forth. Um, the cultural factors that promote inbreeding are consanguineous marriage, marriage between related people, and endogamy, that is, the preference to mate with somebody who is part of your population rather than part of another population without respect to being a cousin or a relative. So elevated levels of relatedness, of course, will increase the level of homozygosity. Now, more than half of today's human populations are involved in consanguineous marriages. That's a, a huge number of people. Um, where do they live? Well, you can see the concentration is largely through South Asia and the Middle East. Largely through this area, you have this very high concentration of cousin marriages. And uh, in such uh, populations, they can account for up to 10% of the human population being mated as close as second cousins. This has tremendous health consequences. It's not just there in North America. In the mid by the middle of the 19th century, first cousin marriages were actually quite frequent within the USA. Today in Britain, among the two million Pakistani immigrants who reside in Britain, the frequency of genetic diseases is 100 times greater than the frequency among Britons who are not from South Asia. That is a big public health problem. Now, can we say how much of that is around the world outside of those people that we know uh, as being inbred? Well, we'll get to see some of the uh, consequences in terms of DNA variation. What we're going to look at is the 1839 unrelated individuals representing 64 worldwide human populations. Among those populations are the group, the Human Genome Diversity Project that uh, Luca Cavalli-Sforza and I helped form in the late 1990s this set of 53 populations. Um, and uh, we incorporated an additional set of populations that has now called the HapMap populations. And uh, these have all been studied with respect to 650,000 single nucleotide polymorphisms. Um, that's the total number of populations. And what I've done here is to look along the genome of all of those individuals and ask where is the genome homozygous at more than five million bases. So we have a string of bases and we ask how long are the strings that are homozygous. Now there are two features of this that I'll draw your attention to. The first one is that the most homozygous people on the planet are the indigenous Americans. This is the rate of homozygosity, and every one of these dots here refers to an individual in a specific population. And the indigenous Americans are here. The reason for their uh, extreme homozygosity has got nothing to do with inbreeding. It has to do with their population bottlenecks as they moved across the Bering Bridge and expanded into the Americas. The population sizes were decreasing. This is a consequence of population size. This is the Middle East and South Asia. 
This is homozygosity, which is a consequence of the culture, the culture of marrying your cousins for generation after generation. Um, here is an example of a population size effect. Uh, one of the populations that uh, Brenna Hen and our group studied uh, was the Hadza, and what we did is look in that Hadza population of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania for runs of homozygosity. And these are every single individual in our study. You can see the individual with the red line. There's 500 megabases of homozygosity in that population. We can ask ourselves, that's a hunter-gatherer population which has no particular preference for cousin marriages or marrying among relatives. Why is there this much homozygosity? The answer relies on two uh, simulation studies that we did. The first one to try to estimate what the current effective population size is, and it's very small. It's in the neighborhood of less than 1,000. And the other thing to notice is we can uh, do the same, use the same simulation to ask uh, what was the cut down? How far did the population actually drop during the bottleneck? And the answer is it's about a factor of six that this population has gone through a drop in its history, at least a factor of six. And that's not due to, uh, this homozygosity is not due to cousin marriages, but due to the population size effect. So uh, we have to uh, keep in mind that it's not only the mating behavior of the population, but the population demography itself, which has this genetic consequence. Now I'm going to show you two graphs here. One uh, that shows you how much the heterozygosity drops as you leave Africa and get to the Americas, and we can see that it's dropping very precipitously. In fact, the correlation is 80%, and that's a function of what happens after 70,000 years ago, say, the out-of-Africa groups slowly move over the next 40 or 50,000 years into the Americas, by which time each colonizing group is quite a bit smaller in terms of its genetic variation than you had in the founding groups that left Africa, which, as you've heard today, are the most uh, genetically variable on the planet. Here is an, a graph that shows the same uh, distance from Africa, but it's now in terms of linguistic diversity, phonemic diversity. And what we see is although it's much noisier, so the correlation is less, you still see this drop in phonemic diversity as you move out of Africa to the Americas. A cultural trait, which is showing a similar pattern over the same period as our other uh, genetic character. Again, if we take the data that we uh, showed earlier from the Human Genome Diversity Project and we just break it down into the East Asian populations, we see that if you ask uh, how similar are the populations across East Asia, we find those populations from Japan to Mongolia, which are along the northern Mongolian border of today's uh, mainland China, and compare them with all of the southern Chinese populations, all of these populations are classified as having languages which belong to the Altaic family. 
These are not. These are Sino-Tibetan populations. The languages, what we've plotted here, are genetics. But the groups which have a natural break here are the two linguistic groups. Up here is Pakistan, and here we see this very strange group called the Kalash, who believe that they're the descendants of Alexander the Great's armies, and the famous Hazara, the subject of the book The Kite Runner, which are discriminated against in Afghanistan and Pakistan because they have so much East Asian ancestry compared to the rest of Pakistan and uh, and Afghanistan. Now, if women move to marry, then you would expect to find less variation between populations for the things that are passed down through the female line, namely the mitochondrial DNA, than you would for Y chromosomes. And that is indeed valid in most cases, where, except where there are a few matrilineal populations that have been studied around the world. And there are far more patrilineal populations or patrilocal populations than there are matrilocal. Um, and it's not just marriage that causes these uh, differences in genetic constitution of populations we have to take into account the effect of colonization. Another word for this in the terms of mating behavior is rape, and another word is killing the men. So Australian Aborigines, self-identified, if you look at their Y chromosomes, about 70% of them are European. If you look at this particular Colombian indigenous population, 94% of their Y chromosomes are European, but 90% of the mitochondria are Amerindian. That means that most of the men were disposed of by the conquistadors, and the rest of the population, the females, were either raped or married by the Spanish invaders. Another way to think about the a discussion with the Neolithic expansion across Europe is to ask, is there cultural diffusion or is there demographic diffusion? That is, demic diffusion or cultural diffusion. Did the farmers move? That's the demic diffusion. Or did the idea of farming move? And to this day, if you look at the genomic data... Uh, particularly at the Y chromosomes and the mitochondrial DNA, you'll see that the Y chromosome data says that about 65% of the Y chromosomal variation in Europe is due to to belonging to the farmers, whereas in mitochondrial DNA, it's very much less. This suggests that the males were moving at a greater rate than the indigenous females who were being married or raped or mated with by the farmers. Now I'm going to show you a different kind of uh, spread of genes. I'm going to talk about TB. This is a very bad disease, and uh, this tells you a worldwide pattern of the frequency or prevalence of tuberculosis, and you can see that in some parts of the world it's 3,000 per 100,000 people who are affected by this devastating disease. Um, most of the African continent is affected by that disease, but there are other parts of the world that are very severely affected by it too. This 
is a very interesting graph published in 1928, and it concerns the number of TB deaths in indigenous Canadian populations. And you'll see this huge spike here and here, which corresponds to the uh, imposition of reservation structures on the Canadian indigenous population. When they were put into reservations, they were under extremely bad conditions, and uh, the uh, epidemic spread very quickly. This is a picture by actually a British woman, Frances Ann Hopkins, she's sitting here, of Canadian fur traders going up the rivers to trade with the indigenous peoples. These were French fur traders. And they went along this route. They belonged to the Northwest Company as opposed to the Red here, which is the Hudson Bay Company, the British one. And this is the frequency, blue, of this particular TB variant, which is called the Quebec variant of TB. And this tells you, uh, if you look in the indigenous peoples of the west of Canada, Saskatchewan in particular, and we date the fur trade expansion. Uh, it starts, we have very good data on the fur trade expansion from the books and records of the Northwest Company. About 5,000 men were involved in the trade. And uh, what we see is that um, there is a frequency up here of that Quebec variant of TB. This one is the standard variant, which was put into culture in laboratories in the year 1905. And we date the, uh, the sample that we have, which is uh, defined by a specific marker in the TB genome. We date it at 1790. And that's exactly in the middle of the range of when the French fur trappers were moving into the Saskatchewan area along that Blue River and bringing their TB with them. And as you know, TB is spread by uh, close proximity, and the TB in those Saskatchewan indigenous people is entirely due to the French Canadian fur trappers who brought it with them. Thank you. My, my collaborators and I, uh, Jim O'Connell and Nick Blurton-Jones, uh, started being interested in grandmothers um, as a consequence of the work we were doing with Hadza Hunter-Gathers, who you've been hearing about quite a bit here. Well, our initial expectations were quite different. We were surprised, well, among, we were surprised by a lot of things, but among the things that we were surprised about was what active foragers little kids were, how uh, effective they could be at acquiring their own nutrients and doing a lot of stuff, even when they were a little bitty, but also how incredibly productive the old ladies were, and uh, especially at taking the kinds of resources that are difficult to take. They require quite a bit of, of a skill and strength, and the old ladies spend more time doing that than uh, the, the childbearing aged women do. And um, 
that kind of thing is really tough for little kids. So they, they give it a shot. They try taking resources like this. They know how to do it. But they're not so effective because they're small and, and not so strong. And that means if you're living in an environment where this is a kind of resource you need, it's important as a starch staple. Actually, this one is, this particular kind of tuber, in, in all seasons, then if you can't cover your own action, well, if the kids can't, then you really can't stay there, or this is kind of an evolutionary dead end. And of course, they depend on help from somebody else, which is mom, because um, she's doing that. But you see, this, this mom has a newborn. And what happens when moms have newborns is that, the, uh, that, that newborn's getting quite a bit of attention. So they're doing a little bit less foraging. And it turns out that the correlation between their work and how well their kids are growing disappears when they have newborns. And now it depends on grandmother. And these uh, wean children, now they, their uh, nutritional requirements are subsidized by their grandmothers. Well, this pattern suggested to us that, wow, okay, we're looking at modern people. Uh, that's all we've got left on the planet to look at. But if we think about what we're learning from the trade-offs in this case, it suggests that if we had an ancestral population that was trying to exploit environments like this, and uh, the kinds of resources that little kids were good at began to be less available, then uh, either you'd have to bail and go somewhere else, or mom would have to help the kids. And if she did, then that would be not milk, but something else, and somebody else could help. And if somebody else helped, then she could move on and have the next baby sooner and that was the basis for the idea that uh, a change in the character of our life history that's really different from what we see in the other living great apes could really have begun with this important role for grandmothers, which would make it advantageous for females to be slightly more robust, more have more uh, better built buffers against mortality. Uh, those who were slightly more robust would be able to then, as their fertility was declining, help their daughters, who could have the next baby sooner, and help their grandchildren so their survival wouldn't decline, and that the genes associated with that would then tend to, under those circumstances, increase in frequency and shift a whole array of features of, of life history. Um, but one of the first objections that, that people might make to, to that hypothesis is to say, but wait a minute, don't we all know that, okay, we look around now and look, oh, all these old people here now, but is isn't that a result of recent history? You know, we've got public health, we've got scientific medicine, we've got all kinds of things that have made mortality go way down. And this uh, figure here is, is widely reprinted, representing what are essentially facts but it is often misread. So here we've got time on the horizontal axis going from the middle of the 19th century to up to the one we're in. And not much change in the age of menopause, but this substantial shift in female life expectancy. So, so pictures like this are often read to say, 
Well, it didn't used to be that women lived past the age of menopause. That's something that is, is very recent. And that's because we're not all demographers, that we tend to misread this. If we look at the, um, the population that was actually the global winner for life expectancy right down there in the middle of the 19th century, it's Sweden. And this is the actual population of Sweden in, in 1840. And here we're just looking at the female side. So this is just the girls. So it's half the population pyramid. And these are uh, girls, immatures. And the green bars then are women in the childbearing ages. And then we got all those women up there who are past their childbearing years. So even though... Life expectancy in this population is 44 years, because remember, this was the global winner in uh, 1840. A third of the, of the adults, if we just look at the women, are past the age of 45, which is essentially when fertility starts to approach zero in human populations. And if we talk about another aspect of the demography, uh, if you're a little girl and you're lucky enough to live to the age of 15, you've still got an 80% chance of living throughout and past your childbearing years in a population like this. And in fact, that this general uh, this general pattern, this are, so we were looking at Sweden, that's an agricultural population in the middle of the 19th century. Here are a bunch of hunter-gatherer populations. The Hadza I was talking about a minute ago are right here. Here are the Ache, hunter-gatherers in, in um, uh, eastern Paraguay, so that's in the New World, really different population histories. Here are uh, Bushmen around Dobi, the most famous hunter-gatherers in the world, and there's some interesting differences among these cases, but in general, the pictures are pretty similar. In all of these cases, life expectancy at birth is way less than 40, but a huge bunch of the uh, adults are past their childbearing years. And in fact, I've, I've uh, shown you three uh, human populations, and I'm going to use the Hadza to represent humans. So this is, you know, modern folks. Uh, and, and compare, this becomes especially clear what the differences are if I compare... Uh, this to data that we now have for wild chimpanzees. Now, in, in both of these cases and in the ones that we were looking at a minute ago, these are models that are based on life tables. So we've done some kind of magic with the, uh, getting rid of all this sort of variation that goes with, with real life to construct this. But this is what uh, the, the synthetic uh, life table across five different wild chimpanzee study sites shows for females, again, we're just looking at female chimpanzees, and as you can see, uh, just this tiny fraction of females are past the, the childbearing years. I mean, it's statistically, they're not there. And here's the human case, again, represented by the Hadza. And just to underline this, if we talk about the, the proportion of survivors as we move through the childbearing years, what happens to chimpanzees as and other living great apes is that as you move through the childbearing years, the, the fraction of survivors goes down, 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 and practically nobody survives the childbearing years. So adults almost all die during those years. Not the case in human populations, even in cases where mortality is as high as it is here. If you've been lucky enough to live to the age of 15, then uh, you've got a really damn good chance of living past your childbearing years. That isn't when most women die. 
Um, and here I've shown the end of fertility as at about 45 in both cases. You might want to say, should I believe something like that? Well, we actually can look at how similar what happens in the ovaries of chimpanzees and humans is. The, these are sections from chimpanzee ovaries, and these are sections from human ovaries. And um, uh, all this amazing stuff about human reproductive physiology, we don't have time to go into, but, but the females start out with this enormous number of primordial follicles of, of, of oocytes that then they just start losing. In fact, they start losing them before birth, and it's just downhill after that. And there are all these gazillions of them in the, right around the age of birth. This chimpanzee was three months old when she died. Um, it, by the middle 20s, there aren't so many left, but by the time we get up here to the age in which there's essentially no fertility, finding one of those is almost impossible. It's very hard to tell the difference between a chimpanzee and, and a human ovary, and we actually have a big enough sample, uh, uh, oh, tiny really, but anyway, a big enough one that we can actually, so these are post-mortem uh, ovarian sections from chimpanzees, and we can count the number of primordial follicles. Now, these are just sections, so they're just slices through an ovary. It's going to be a tiny sample, and, but compare them to uh, the classic human data sets. And if we do, we can only go up to the age of 47. That was, that was the oldest sample we had of chimpanzees, but um, here, the, the, the whole thing has been logged, but there is no statistically significant difference between the slopes of those two lines. We are losing our oocytes at the same rate in both species. So, so what's going on is that the um, ovar pattern of ovarian aging looks so similar in us and chimpanzees. It looks like the ancestral pattern really hasn't changed. But then there's all the rest of our physiology. Uh, and, and we look at, at other kinds of things, which I was illustrating with these hardworking Hadza grandmothers, but, you know, look around or look at me, I can still, you know, uh, dance and sing and so on. You know, stuff is more or less working, even though I'm postmenopausal, right? Um, now, grandmothering is a contender for why this sort of thing was favored in our evolution. But how do we do it? I mean, how is this possible? And that question really arises as a consequence of, well, I was showing you what happens with the disappearance of these follicles, and when, they are, when there's no more ovulation, then there's no more secretion of estrogen from the ovaries. And yet there are all these things for which you need estrogen to keep it ticking over. And th this is true for um, uh, all kinds of uh, mammals, but we need all these things to keep so much of our physiology still repaired. Um, and so, uh, you know, how do we square this circle? What could be going on? There is actually a pretty good contender. You know, the, the estrogen that's in peripheral tissues can come from the ovaries, but it also comes from steroids that are produced by the adrenal. So these precursors, DHEA and DHEAS, can be converted in peripheral tissues if they have the right enzymes and accessory proteins. Then they're converted into estrogen and um, can, can do what estrogen needs to do to keep those peripheral tissues going. And, and this particular one, DHEA and DHEAS, 
in general, it's been characterized as higher in primates than in non-primate mammals, and we belong to an order of animals that are relatively long-lived for their body size. So mm, those things are kind of going together. Uh, the endocrinologist, Fernand Labrie, has, has pointed out that if we look at levels of DHEAS, which have attracted attention because our, our, uh, our circulating levels of DHEAS are so high. This is true of all of us. It's the highest, the, the circulating levels are by far the highest in, of DHEAS of any hormone in your body. And as Labrie says, you know, five to, or let's see, what is that, four to five orders of magnitude higher than estradiol. And, and as he has focused, uh, he and others have focused attention especially on how those precursors are then being converted in peripheral tissues to estrogens. And Labrie's gone so far as to say, even if we talk about women who are still cycling, 75% of the estrogen in peripheral tissues is, uh, is coming from the, the adrenals, the conversion of DHEA. And then, of course, after menopause, it's 100%. So if we've got that story on the table... And now we look at the pattern that I was highlighting before. You know, here is this Hadza woman who's in her middle 60s when this photograph is taken. You know, she is um, doing this really energetically expensive, uh, fancy feat of engineering to dig these um, underground storage organs. She is well past menopause, and she is still strong and very productive. Here, to represent what happens in chimpanzees is Gamma, who was lucky enough to be, or anyway, who was living at Yerkes, so she had, you know, medical attention. There was the cafeteria, all those things. And uh, so she's in her 50s when that photograph is taken, but she's a very old lady, right? And most chimpanzees are dying while their ovaries are still working. And they have geriatric symptoms of being, you know, frail and having trouble climbing trees and so on. So um, here is uh, what the uh, circulating levels of DHEAS look like in women. This is, these are published data sets on women and where we could pull out individual levels. And uh, the, the a model through this, so you get to see how, how variable it actually is. But there's, there is the best model to fit this. And primatologists who study aging and other primates have, have suggested that the rate of decline in this hormone, in DHEAS, is a good biomarker for aging in primates in general based on the human numbers and numbers from a couple of macaque species and baboons in which there seemed to be a correlation with the circulating level and its rate of decline and average adult lifespan. And so they've suggested that uh, this rate of decline is a biomarker of aging in primates. But we don't know about our closest living relatives, or there had not been any data. And so if we were to take the arguments that, that the the primate aging people have, have developed, and we think, okay, maybe that is a good biomarker of aging, then we should expect it to decline twice as fast in chimpanzees as in humans. And if it did, 
then maybe that would explain why, if, if that's really necessary to keep these tissues uh, well-maintained, then if it declines that fast in chimpanzees, that would help explain why they have these geriatric symptoms even in, in their fertile years and slower in women. There's a hypothesis. Well, we uh, for chimpanzees who were sedated for other reasons, uh, their health checks, we got samples. And um, this is what... Uh, the the uh, circulating levels look like. It turns out that yeah, the best model through that looks like that. Wow, it is not the case that it's, de- it's declining uh, twice as fast. It declines actually slower. It's a much lower level in chimpanzees. So this is consistent overall with the idea that the thing that really accounts for at least contributes to how we do it is what's going on within our adrenals. So we have a whole array of things that are consequences of that. And just to come back to gene culture coevolution, I, I want to note that additional implications of having a life history like that that take us back to why we're so cultural might lie in the sorts of social interactions that then occur between mothers and infants and young siblings. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, the relationship between genetics and language, and you'll see, I think, I, I hope, some of the themes emerging from all of the other talks in ours. So it's clear that humans are not like other creatures, especially in two areas. One is the importance of culture. The second is the importance of language, so you might argue the two are the same, and this tremendous variation in behavioral norms across groups as illustrated in the picture. Um, so Aristotle noticed, noted memorably many years ago, ho anthropos fuse politikon zoon, which translates into English as man is by nature a social animal. Politicon here means social, not political. And I've taken uh, the definition of culture uh, from E.B. Tyler, who is regarded widely as one of the founders, if not the founder, of cultural anthropology. So... It's really important to notice that though there are other creatures that have some form of culture, humans are, the the diversity of culture in humans is just tremendous. Um, This is from one of my kids' favorite websites called Hats of Meat, if you're interested. It's been around for a very long time. Um, Now, the same is true not just of cultural diversity, but of language diversity. So just like every human community has a culture, every community has, a, has its own language as well. And um, despite what you may have heard from some well-known linguists, at least on the surface, languages differ from one another much more than they resemble one another. We could argue about that for a long time, but as I say, at least on the surface that is true. So one question you might ask is whether this linguistic diversity, this great diversity among languages, is due to genetic diversity. We know, 
that there is some connection between the human ability to acquire a language and at least one gene, and that's FOXP2. And FOXP2, when the human variant was first discovered, people thought it was the gene for language. People have, of course, now in the 20 years since they've discovered that that FOXP2 has 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 to do with lots of aspects of human behavior, but it is still true that it has something to do with language. Uh, it is also true uh, that genetic differences between individuals within a community do correlate with linguistic abilities. And a lot of this work was done by Karen Stromswald in her uh, work uh, looking at looking at twins. So question is, if you look at population-level genetic differences, are they related in any way to linguistic differences between these populations? This is the kind of thing um, that Greg Ray talked about when he talked about the notion that you have a gene and then you have a trait, right? So the question is, is there a genetic difference that, that manifests itself in a linguistic difference. And there's one study, one suggestive study, that suggests that, yeah, there, there may be something there, and that has to do with what we call tone languages. So tone languages are languages like Chinese. Now, every language makes use of tone. If you don't make use of tone, you sound like Hal, the computer from, from the Space Odyssey. So in all languages, people use tone as a kind of a speech melody. But in tone languages, individual words can be distinguished in terms of their pitch. And I'm not going to try and show that to you because I'm really terrible at it, in part maybe because of my genetics. But uh, Chinese is the standard example where in Mandarin Chinese you have four tones and you can get the same syllable ma with each of the four tones. And in one case it means mother and in another case it means horse, etc., etc. Interestingly, these tone languages are concentrated in Africa, East Asia, and the Americas. So here is a map uh, from the World Atlas of Language Structures, which is a, a, a wonderful resource, showing you uh, those red dots are what we call complex tone languages, and we don't need to worry about exactly what that means. But you'll see that they're all concentrated in certain areas. Uh, somebody suggested to me that it might have something to do with climate, because uh, a lot of them are around the equator. But as you'll see, that, it, that doesn't seem to be the case. It's, it seems to be more genetic. All right, now how do you get a tone language? Very briefly, the way you get a tone language is by losing a consonant distinction. So if I say s and I say z, you can hear that s has a much higher frequency than z. So consonants just inherently have differences in their frequency. And if you lose the distinction between the consonants, that distinction can migrate onto the vowel preceding them. And that's basically how you get tones. And we know that this is true. Uh, this is called tonogenesis. So the question is, well, does, why doesn't that happen all the time? So, for example, German and Russian don't distinguish final consonants in terms of like s and z. Only s occurs at the end of a word. So what ha happens? The answer, uh, in, and this is somewhat speculative, but the answer is that this may have to do with people's ability to actually m 
make these tone distinctions, to, to hear those tone distinctions, and that that may have to do with genetics, and in particular with certain alleles of two brain size genes, ASPM and microcephalin. And the idea is that these conservative alleles predispose people to actually encode these finer distinctions. And here is uh, the... the um, the graph that, that attempts to, uh, to show you that. And if you look at the, the lower corner there, you'll see all of those little white squares concentrated. Those little white squares are the tone languages, and they're also the area where people have the lowest frequency of the adaptive haplogroups of ASPM and microcephalin. So those are the conservative, those are the genetically conservative populations. So the idea is that there's a correlation between the whether you have a tone language and whether you are genetically conservative with respect to these two genes. Um, that's an example, as I said, of a genetic difference that seems to be correlated directly with a cultural trait, in this case, the, the development of a tone language. I'm going to shift now and talk about this gene culture feedback mechanism. And now I'm going to look at sign languages, and we're going to look at the possibility that, that, that genetics and culture feed each other in the development of sign languages. So everybody knows that language is more than speech. It's really impossible, unless you are Prince Charles or Queen Elizabeth, to speak without gesturing. Um, <laughs> Everybody uses what we call co-speech gestures. Everybody points. When I say this, I can't say this without pointing to this. Uh, I can't say that without pointing to that. So even what we call spoken language really is, is, involves both speech and gesture. And what has been discovered over in fairly recent times is that any people who don't have speech will develop a sign language that has its origins in the gesture component of language. So, question. That's the question. What is the relationship between genetics and culture in the emergence and persistence of a sign language? So, some very, very simple facts for those of you who may not be familiar with this. Most deafness is non-syndromic, which means that there's really nothing else that's wrong with these people other than that they are deaf. The two major genetic types of deafness are dominant and recessive, and most, at least about three-quarters of cases of genetic deafness are due to, uh, to a recessive genetic condition. All right. People hoped, I would say even up to 10 years ago, that they would find the gene for recessive deafness. That is not true. There is, not, there is no one gene for recessive deafness. There are many genes that have been identified, um, at, at least 120 different genes that have been identified as uh, gene, recessive genes for, uh, for non-syndromic deafness. But basically, they all have the same result, which is that people are born deaf. Now, 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk very briefly about a theory that Professor Feldman and his colleague developed about in a series of, of articles about 20 years ago uh, about genetics and deafness. And what they were interested in is why does a sign language persist? What are the conditions under which a sign language would persist? So they made the following assumptions. This is purely theoretical work. Uh, they made the following assumptions. First of all, they were only interested in recessive hereditary deafness. Uh, they were interested in um, an environment in which transmission of a language occurred from parents to children. And they concluded that a sign language could persist over many generations under certain favorable conditions, in theory. And these were the favorable conditions that they identified in theory. One is a greater frequency of the gene for deafness. Second, which is very interesting, is a greater proportion of hearing people acquiring the sign language. A greater proportion of carriers marrying each other, what we call deaf-deaf marriage. And then finally, that it was... It, it, that the gene, that the language, the sign language was more likely to survive if children learned the sign language from other family members besides their parents. So that's the theory, which, as I say, dates from about 20 years ago. Now we're going to look at some facts. In other words, what actually happens and what has happened. The first set of facts has to do with American Sign Language. And here it is very clear in a series of studies done over the last five years or so that, as we say here, marriage matters. So this is actually picking up on uh, what Professor Feldman was talking about in terms of uh, what we call assortative mating. In other words, people selectively marrying certain people. So this is American Sign Language. Here it is very clear, and it makes sense, that the establishment of schools for the deaf increased the fitness of deaf individuals by providing them with a community and a language. In other words, and, and it's not just schools that we're talking about. Uh, if you've read any of Carol's work on deaf culture, you know that there were deaf clubs that were established. There was an entire deaf community that emerged in this country and elsewhere um, in, in Western Europe centered around deafness. And what, these, what these, these schools and clubs did was they provided people, deaf people, with an opportunity to meet if they met that provided them with an opportunity to marry each other. And that is what happened. In fact, there's been a dramatic increase in deaf-deaf marriages in Western countries over the last century. And not surprisingly, the fertility rate of these marriages is about the same as the fertility rate of hearing marriages. Most interestingly, the prevalence of the, 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 the most common recessive gene for deafness has increased fairly dramatically in the last 60 years. And so that really, that, that, that's a very nice uh, factual demonstration that Feldman and Aoki were on the right track. I mean, they had a theory, and this is a demonstration that, that this really works in practice. Okay, I'm going to shift from American Sign Language to a very, very different environment, and that's the environment in which we work. 
And these are what we call village sign languages. This is a not very good photo of the village where we happen to work. And over the last 10 years or so, people have discovered, people knew about these villages, but really people have begun to work in villages which, uh, that, that where sign languages seem to be uh, prevalent. All right, there are two types of sign languages. Very briefly, there are sign languages like American Sign Language. We... This is a term that we've used. We call them deaf community sign languages. And those are communities where deaf people come together, uh, either through a school or through a club or whatever. And they are there together because they're deaf. But, of course, genetically, there is no single underlying reason for their deafness. It's simply the phenotype of the deafness that is bringing these people together. Then there are village sign languages. Village sign languages emerge for purely genetic reasons in communities that are, for whatever reason, socially self-contained. And what happens is that the, for the, because of their social self-containment, that provides a, 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 a climate that is ripe for the type of genetic deafness that we're talking about. Um, here are some examples. Uh, the only real example in this country is uh, of a village sign language is Martha's Vineyard Sign Language, which was used in Martha's Vineyard probably from about the time of the founding of the community in the 1650s till around 1900, and is the subject of a wonderful book uh, called Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language by Nora Gross that I recommend highly. Um, and then there are other communities that are really distributed all around the world that have been identified. I'm sure there are more such communities, but these are the communities that people know of. Uh, this is just a very brief sample of those are the, the communities for which we have some idea of what the, the genetic basis of the deafness is. In Asayid, uh, it is very clearly DFNB1, Connexin 26, uh, and these other communities there's a, a differ uh, in terms of, of what the genetics of the uh, of, of the deafness is in those sign languages. The village where we work is called Isayad. It's in the Negev Desert in Israel. We know the history of the village. We have a complete genetic profile of that village. Well, very briefly, these are the genetic conditions of the deafness in this village. The social conditions are exactly what you expect, that it is closed, a practice of consanguineous marriage. Uh, deaf men and women marry within the village, and there was very little schooling within the village. So it is clear that what uh, Professor Feldman and Aoki predicted is exactly true, that if you have recessive deafness and you have a contained community, you will sustain, you will develop and sustain a sign language. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.